The Athletic. The only way to score is, of course, to play uh, with a hand break off. I'm Ian Stone. This is Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Now, talk of squad strength is all around the world of football at the moment, and it is no different here at Handbrake Off. We're showing off our strength in depth this week. James McNicholas is absent for the second week running. Will he get back in when he's fit? Yes, probably will. Uh, we bring him once again, Adrian Clark, alongside the ever-present Amy Lawrence. No need to rest her. And also draft in, it says here, Nick, the young whippersnapper, <laughs> Nick Callow, <laughs> fresh from Mikel Arteta's press conference and on to handbrake off. We'll be finding out what the manager said in due course. Hello, everyone. Morning, afternoon. Hello. Hello. Morning. I love Morning, that. Nick, I, you I've just got to pull you up on the no need to rest, Amy. You obviously didn't. Nobody obviously was uh, aware of the messages I sent to D, to Tayo, our producer, last night, saying, "Oh God, I'm falling apart. Can get someone else to do the pod." So <laughs> I'm somehow yeah. here anyway. But you're here. You are here. You know, maybe you're not a good trainer, but on the day you turn up and you're there. It's perfect. I, I, um, the I Patrick say... era of pods in that case. I'll take that. <laughs> That's all right, isn't it, really? Uh, before we move on, uh, I should say sad news. Uh, yesterday saw the passing of Ian St. John, a man who had a fantastic football career with uh, Liverpool, Motherwell and, of course, Scotland. Uh, actually played in the 67 game when Scotland beat England 3-2 at, was it at Wembley. And uh, then the headlines were Scotland win the World Cup. Uh, for most of us, he holds a special place in our hearts for his fantastic double act on Saturday morning with Jimmy Greaves. I'm talking about Saint and Greavesy. Um, there's been a lot of little memes and, and uh, clips of the show. There's one gone round with, uh, with him with uh, Donald Trump doing the FA Cup draw. which is I, I wondered if I dreamt that, but apparently it was there. Uh, but with that in mind, uh, our question this morning, uh, what was... Or what is your favourite football show on the TV? Uh, now, I'm asking this, bearing in mind that I present currently a football show <laughs> on the television. Is that your favourite, Tony? <laughs> all putting, time? Putting aside, putting aside, it almost goes without saying that, that you'd all like the footballs on, on BT Sport back in April for another series. But I'll go around uh, asking uh, the panel. Amy, I'll start with you. What's your favourite? What was your favourite football show on the TV? Oh, wow. Um, I have to say, uh, Saint and Greavesy, the news of uh, um, Ian St John's uh, passing yesterday did bring back sort of huge waves of nostalgia. And um, I really remember as a child just it being such a highlight of the week and having that access to football, I mean, it, it, the way it was timed on a Saturday lunchtime, you know, it, it was it was a kind of golden moment. It, the fact that it was funny, which um, I spoke with Jim Rosenthal yesterday and he penned a really rather beautiful tribute to those golden days. Um, yeah. And it was exactly the point that he mentioned, which is probably football reporting had been a little bit po-faced and serious up till that point, and you know, keep you know things had to be for the a matter of record. And Saint and Greasy came along and and shook that up. It was it just looked like there was a lot of laughs to go alongside, you know, some more serious uh, an analysis. And I suppose that reflects why people love going to football because 
you know, you love watching the game, but there's nothing better than messing around with the people next to you and listening to all the comments and reacting to it as the game's going on. That's part of the the whole thing. Um, but anyway, I'm, having said that, I was tempted to choose St. Greavesy, but um, uh, I think I'm actually in here for a really, really modern uh, telly programme uh, about football, which is Ted Lasso. I don't know if anybody has seen it. It's on Apple TV. Uh, I hadn't had Apple TV until I got a new device at some point. It came free. And I thought, oh, I'll watch this show everyone's talking about. And it came along at a point of lockdown where sort of feeling a little bit down in the dumps and things were a bit difficult. And Well, any point, you mean. <laughs> kind of. But uh, <laughs> I don't know about a lot of people have said they found it difficult to read during these periods or difficult to concentrate on stuff or what or pay attention or I don't even know what I've been doing but I haven't been doing much and then I watched Ted Lasso and I enjoyed every single second and I just thought the idea of uh, an American coach coming over to uh, take charge of a fictitious Premier League team sounded abysmal (laughs) but it's wonderful so uh, even if you want to somehow sneak advantage of some sort of Apple subscription for a month or something it's 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 brilliant it's so uh, warm and so funny and so uh, the characters are fantastic uh, and I loved every moment. Oh, good recommendation, Amy. All right. Uh, I've, got, I've got Apple TV. <laughs> I just never think there's anything on it I really You're going to thank me for this, Adrian. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, well, that, well, Adrian, what about you? Uh, Favourite football show? Def- well, definitely Saint and Greavesy for sure. When I was a kid, I mean, it was it was awesome for the reasons that that, that Amy outlined. Just it's just fun, and it didn't they didn't take themselves seriously. And I think the sports radio that we that we see now is maybe sort of been spawned from from Saint and Greavesy days. I was on it once. Can you believe wow. that? I was I, on I, Saint and Greavesy. Impressive. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, no speaking role or anything like that. But they sent the cameras down to Lillishaw to record. Um, a feature on uh, the the next generation of, of English talent, and it was at the trials for the FA National School at Lillishaw to get to get in, and um, and who was in charge of those trials? It was the current England manager, Sir Bobby Robson, not Sir then. Uh, Bobby Robson was basically doing the lot himself, and um, we were only fourteen, and and we were doing training games and stuff, and and, and they filmed it, and they did it, they did a lovely feature, and I have to say, I was absolutely buzzing to be on Saint and Greavesy afterwards. They'd, they'd shown a clip of me doing a quite nice little turn and a piece of skill, and it does still exist somewhere. I know that my mum and dad still have it <laughs> on, uh, on well, they had it on VHS, and then they turned it into DVD. So, so it does exist somewhere. So I'm really chuffed about that. Um, so that was my favourite for sure. But but honourable mention for um, I, I think Gazetta. Uh, on Channel Four, yes, uh, Football Italia. It, it was fantastic. Obviously, James Richardson. It was his sort of launch pad, wasn't it? And he was just genius there in the cafe, wasn't he? Chilled out, and and and, and it's just such a. It was such so good to see Italian football because we'd sort of been denied overseas football until that point. The best players in the world were definitely playing over there at, at that the time. time yeah. Yeah, it was just, yeah, it was an absolute treat when you're a little bit, well, I wasn't particularly hungover at, at the time, but 
No, I, I probably was a few times on a Sunday morning, just watching the magazine show, and uh, yeah, it was awesome. And, and of course, these days get get to work with James um, on various Totally shows, which is just just a treat. I John Stones, by the way, wrote in not the John Stones. I'm I'm assuming at Stonesy Ten. Uh, he also talked about Gazetta for people of the Saint and Greaves era. Saturday morning, watching a league that was a million miles away from the Premier League in terms of quality, um, and there was something. I, I think you're right, Adrian. There's something very continental <laughs> about the whole it had thing. A flavour to it, S- didn't it? Yeah. Sitting in a cafe, like you say, uh, drinking strong espressos, I imagine. Uh, Nick, what about you? Yeah, off the bench again, Stoney. Thanks very much. And delighted to be back. But yeah, I mean, that was sad <laughs> news about Saint passing, of course. And Saint and Greaves, it was absolutely fantastic. I happened to have Saturday off the last weekend and found myself in front of Football Focus which as a kid I used to love watching Football Focus and On the Ball, which I think preceded Saint and, and Greavesy. But after about five minutes, I just switched it off. I found it so po-faced and just taking itself a bit too seriously. I know there's a place for all that sort of analysis, but it's not really for me. And even with Martin Keown and some other bloke with equally big, large, black, ridiculous glasses on, I sort of just couldn't stay tuned into it. And there was, I just remember as a kid, a favourite memory from On the Ball or Saint and Greavesy was Frank Stapleton and someone else. They were at the Arsenal pitch showing you how to head the ball. And I used to love watching Frank Stapleton, obviously, before he uh, left the club in quite acrimonious circumstances. And I just had a vim- I used to go out to the park afterwards with a mate and say, cross the ball, cross the ball. I know how to head like Frank Stapleton. Um, but for, you know, I love fantasy, <laughs> fantasy football with Badir and Skinner was very good. But I've got a big soft spot for, for Danny Baker and Danny Kelly and their show on BT Sport which um, you probably knocked off the air, Stoney, with your uh, excellent... No, 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 no. It ran at the same time. I did? OK. Because... Well, I'm, yeah, yeah. with all due respect, I uh, tuned into Danny Baker and, and Danny Kelly. I didn't, can't remember what their show was called, but um, it was very... Baker reverent. and Kelly, Baker I and, think. Yeah, it, 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 yeah usually <laughs> is. Yeah, but it just doesn't take football too seriously, and that, for me, no. is um, a good way to be. Um, a couple of uh, people have written in about this. Uh, I hope I get this pronunciation right. It, either, either Gyro Jaramillo or possibly a Hiro Haramillo. Uh, fantasy football with Badil and Skinner is king. No argument will be taken on this matter. Okay. Uh, Woodwardo at Woodwardo14 mentioned standing room only. Uh, Amy, you wanted to talk about this. I don't have any recollection of this at all, but you do. This was actually one of my real contenders as well. Uh, and in many ways, I don't think that the Badil and Skinner and Gazetta and some of those programmes would have necessarily existed the way that they did without Standing Room Only. It ran, I think, for uh, three or four years in the early 1990s. Um, The host was Simon O'Brien, who I think used to act in Brookside and had a sort of scouse football background somewhere. Um, And Shelley Webb, who was married to the then uh, England player Neil Webb, but they had all sorts of... David Baddiel, funnily enough, was on it uh, with Rob Newman, fellow comic. Um, and they used to do sk- uh, sketches under the banner of Sepp Meyer's Comedy Shorts. Uh, Rory Bremner did some of the voices. So they had a really good uh, comic uh, element to it. But it was also a show that was really inspired by, I think, the fanzine culture of the time. It was quite a little bit anarchic, a bit informal. But they also did... You know, interviews with amazing football personalities, um, but with that slightly irreverent uh, way, as I said, that kind of probably led a bit of a um, uh, opened the doors maybe for the the, the, sta- the likes of the Badil and Skinner and, and so on. Um, but there's a brilliant bit that I've forgotten that I found on Wikipedia where it says 
one of the features was the supporter loo, which is a pun on porter loo, uh, which was a small trailer <laughs> Thank you. With, with nothing more than a seat and a camera inside uh, where they used to take to different grounds around the UK and basically leave outside the ground. And fans could come out of their match or before the match and go into this supporter loo, close the door and sort of have a bit of a rant into this camera. I suppose... It, it was uh, pre-Twitter. Isn't pre, it? Well, it was pre-Twitter. It was also sort of pre, uh, you know, Big Brother going and sitting on the chair and, and talking into the camera about your innermost feelings. And um, it says here that on one occasion, the Blackburn Rovers reserve goalkeeper Bobby Mims sat inside and expressed his frustration on not playing regularly for the Rovers first team. Now, I don't remember that, but <laughs> that's fantastic. Yes. Um, anyway... Yeah, uh, so I very, very much felt Standing Ramoni was a product of its times and it felt like a, a great bridge, uh, again, between the sort of more formal football stuff and it, it connected more with what with what the fans were, were thinking. And that was a... It's called Standing Ramoni. It came out in 1991. That was around about the time when um, All Seater Stadia were coming in. So there's a, a straight, you know, something poignant about that that it it, it was a uh, something that linked if you like the old-fashioned football culture of the terraces with what was what was to come yeah i think i think the word you use there amy informality uh, i think as we're talking about um ian st john I think that was there was a lovely informality about his and uh, and Jimmy Greaves show. Plus the fact that they were both superstar strikers and they got respect for that as well. And there was obvious chemistry between the two of them. Um, by the way, uh, someone mentioned just before Jim Rosenthal has written a lovely piece on the Athletic website about Ian St John, and um, you should definitely have a read of that. Right now, you can subscribe to the Athletic for a special price of three pound ninety nine a month for six months. That is 40% off the full price of a subscription. You'll, you'll enjoy great analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers around, as well as ad-free versions of all our podcasts. So go to theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal pod to take advantage of this special 40% discount. That's theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal pod. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. We were a bit uh, with the handbrake at the time. Um, before we get into the main chat, by the way, there's a piece on the Athletic uh, website from Dermot Corrigan about what's going on at Barcelona. Um, the former Barcelona president, Bartomeu, was arrested. Uh, a company that was hired by Barcelona were using troll accounts to besmirch the reputation of those who were seen as critics or enemies of the current hierarchy. These include Pep, uh, Puyol, Xavi, Piquet and Lionel Messi. Um, Nick... Barcelona, they, they they maybe were heading for a fall anyway. We saw the fallout with Lionel Messi last year, but uh, uh, it looks like things are happening. Part of the reason I'm asking this is because uh, James wrote a piece about uh, the exchanges between Arsenal and Barcelona over the years. It, things can go very badly wrong if clubs are badly managed like this. Yes, and you've just seen from the way they can no longer sort of command or dominate the transfer market anymore 
that their their stars really fallen and and the way they lost to PSG in the last Champions League match they just looked a shadow of the team that you know we played so many times and so many great games when Messi was at his at his pomp even though with with Jack and and Cesc, we managed to get some good results against them now and then yeah it's you know, I've all, I think like most football fans always loved watching Barcelona play and it's a bit of a sad sight to see them on the slide I and mean, funny enough you mentioned Barcelona that was one of the topics that came up in Mikel's uh, press conference this morning because he has been linked Laporta who's one of the presidential candidates out there has said if I get in I'm going to bring Mikel Arteta in as my manager and you'd think normally well you've got to go to Barcelona and be manager but at the moment it looks like a bit of a poison chalice doesn't it would you really want to go in there at the moment of course Mikel said I'm Arsenal today I'm Arsenal tomorrow I'm only focused on here these things always come up when there's presidential elections so I don't take too much notice of them but obviously I can't avoid all, all the speculation no, Adrian, it's a bit worrying you didn't mention Friday, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Surprising, really, given that Arsenal are mid-table in the Premier League. Um, it, it's good that, that maybe Barcelona have recognised that some of the improvements that Mikel Arteta has made and, and, and stylistically, I guess, that he would be a good fit having, having worked with Pep and, and we can see what he's trying to achieve. Um, but yeah, I, it feels like the, it was a big old gamble for Mikel to... Well, he couldn't, he couldn't turn down this job, really. But it was a big old gamble from Arsenal to employ Mikel, who's effectively learning on the job um, currently. And, and I think from Barcelona's point of view, it would probably be a, another gamble from them to, to chase him. And yeah, I, I don't see that one. No, I, mean, I, really I, I don't either. I mean, Amy, right now, you'd probably want to stay at Arsenal, would you not? Oof. I mean, Barcelona is Barcelona, like whether they're going through a crisis yeah. or not. And I think if yeah. you have confidence in yourself and um, it, somebody is uh, s- s- sort of chasing after you um, and coveting you uh, of that scale, it's it would be very strange to not be tempted and flattered. That's not to say it would be the right move by any stretch of the imagination. No. And I, I kind of agree with Adrian a bit. And when you think if, you know, if, if Arsenal are sort of in mid-table for all the little bits and pieces that he's doing, you know, Barcelona have got a humongous job. And I think whatever mess Arteta inherited at Arsenal and, you know, some of that mess is still being cleared up, what a, what a mess to have to go and take on at a club of the size of Barcelona. Um, yeah. I think that would be quite a daunting thing to, to take on. But having said that, I can imagine that people might think this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to coach a club of that size. And if you have confidence in yourself, you'd back yourself to improve things. I think you would, but I, I would agree. The general uh, feeling seems to be that it might be the wrong time for him to get an offer like that um, but I, but I, I suppose I also feel I agree with um, with Nick Nick I think you said that uh, him being coveted by a club the size of Barcelona it's, it's uh, it, it shows that maybe we're we're moving in the right direction or he's moving in the right direction listen we'll watch this space I guess um, and we'll, we'll see how that develops uh, now it, we're recording this on Wednesday morning in what is a relatively quiet and serene week for Arsenal. I think it's fair to say that after a very tense Europa League game, a four-hour flight back from Athens and then six changes for an early kickoff away at Leicester on Sunday morning, 
No one was expecting that result, although I imagine pretty much all of us would have predicted us letting in a goal in the first few minutes. Uh, a lot of people were down on Mikel Arteta's team selection. As I said, six changes, including two goal, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang and saviour of our season so far, Bukayo Saka. And yet the reserves have included El Nene, Pepe, Pablo Mari and even Willian did very well. So we were wondering, is there such a thing as a first eleven anymore? Does it matter? Most teams have a first six or seven, and after that, it's any four from ten. Uh, it seems to work for Manchester City. Um, Amy, I'll come to you first. Do we have a first eleven at the moment? Um, not entirely. I mean, Arsenal have been too inconsistent to say that over the you know course of the season there's a defined first eleven. I think a manager would work towards it as far as you can. Injury suspensions, um, everything form permitting. It's nice to know, all right, we've got a big game. These are the guys I'm going to rely on. Um, but because there's been such a bit of alterations during the season, that's indicative of the fact that I think Arteta's been searching for it. Uh, of course, you're going to need your squad. Um, but it it looked to me like he'd almost found something resembling it when... Saka moved to the right and Emil Smith-Rowe came in at number 10 um, yeah, a few weeks ago and suddenly the shape of the team felt different and things began to settle uh, uh, and the improvements were more noticeable. But, you know, modern football, especially in, a, in this ridiculous season when they've not had a pre-season, they've all been playing forever, it seems, um, you're going to see plenty of changes. So that's why... For all of the Willian discourse we've had over this season, you need someone like that to come in and play well sometimes. Yeah, Adrian, you're the former pro here. Um, when you came through, that a first eleven was a more recognised thing, was it not? Oh, definitely. Yeah, I think you, there was less inclination to rotate. There's no such thing as a red zone, so <laughs> and, and players won't admit to, to feeling tired or jaded. They won't even confess really half the time or older players wouldn't if, if they had a niggle. They'd just, they'd just keep it quiet and, and, and play on because no one wanted to miss out because it was so much harder to, to get back in in the, in, the, in the olden days, so to speak. Yeah. Um, I think, in, in Amy's right, in this season, no team can have a fixed 11. It's, it's just impossible given the, the churn of, of matches. And I think we're actually in quite a healthy position compared to, to some clubs because our our fringe players, our players on the bench have been tuned up by the Europa League, but also that they are good enough that to, to, to step in. It's not as if they're, they're untried players that, that are on the periphery at the moment. So so in that sense, it's, it's a plus. But I think most managers would love to have a nailed on starting 11 that they could turn to, that they know that is my best team. And of course, that's 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 the goal. That's the aim, I think, for, for most managers. But but right now, that's not possible. And Arsenal haven't played well enough for that to be possible in Arteta's mind. No. I mean, let's be honest. How many of the current squad are absolutely nailed on to be, if they're fit, to start the first match next season? I'd say Leno, Tierney, Partey, Saka and Aubameyang. I don't think anyone else has really been brilliant enough or consistent enough to say, you know, I'm here 
you know, I, I'm absolutely part of the furniture here. I think. Come on, Shaka. He plays every game. <laughs> Look, Shaka, Shaka, Shaka is nailed on at the moment. But I'm just thinking ahead to next season. Look, yeah. I, I like Granite Shaka, but he's imperfect. And look, no player is perfect. Um, I still think there are issues around Jacker's consistency. But yeah, Xhaka and Partey is the partnership at the moment. It Will is. it be the partnership at the start of next season? I don't know. Um, but th- those are the star men for me. Other, other places are up for grabs, no? I, I, Nick, I mean, this is an interesting point. I, I, I just wanted to add to that. I mean, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang scored two goals uh, in Athens on Thursday and then didn't start on Sunday. When we grew up watching football, Nick, that would have been unheard of. Yeah, never change a winning team, never change a winning combination. No. That was a sort of philosophy of most managers and people like Brian Clough. You could, I can almost hear him saying it now. Um, I was thinking about this myself sort of last night and this morning. If Arsenal were in the Europa League final tomorrow, what would their starting eleven be? And I bet the four or five of us, everyone listening, would probably come up with slightly different lineups. Uh, funnily enough, uh, Arteta was talking about this morning because he was asked what are the problems he's facing for the last few months of the season. And he says, the main thing I need to do is to make the whole squad feel important and valued. And he went into detail about saying players, whether it's like Nketiah, Martinelli, Willy Anson, whether they're in the squad or not in the squad on the bench, if I just want them to play one minute, I want them to play really, really well. I don't want excuses about I haven't played for ages or so on. I need a few games to get up to speed. He said, this is what I'm trying to get inside their sort of mentality, that they're always ready for action, always ready to play. They used to, you remember the old goalkeeper, John Burridge, he used to say that his wife used to chuck, watching TV, get his wife to chuck fruit and oranges and things. And so he was constantly ready to react to something. He slept, <laughs> slept in his goalkeeper gloves. So I imagine that's a bit like the, uh, the uh, atmosphere Arteta's trying to create to try and keep the whole squad on their toes. I don't know how that's going to be practically possible. I mean, last time we spoke, Stoney, you said that you wanted William to stay as far away from a football pitch for the rest of his contract but then he came on well against Benfica and played set up a goal and he was excellent against Leicester so um nailed on first team now for me good yeah well, nothing like a good yeah. old fickle football fan well quite I was just going to say isn't that the hardest bit of being a manager I think is keeping everybody motivated and making everybody feel like you love them because the truth is you, you when it comes to big games like cup finals and cup semi-finals you, you know your colours to the marsh you you reveal all, don't you, in terms of who your favourites actually are. But during the course of that season, you have to make everybody feel wanted and, and liked. And it's it's really challenging when you're not picking them. You know, Gabriel Martinelli, for example, at the moment, must feel a little bit neglected. But but Mikel, I think, yeah, what he does day in, day out at London Colney and on these trips is, is vital in terms of in giving him encouragement. That, that was one of the things about... Um the game at Leicester that I thought was really striking where Aubameyang's warming up with, a, a, you know, 10 minutes to go or whatever. The game is more or less won, barring something calamitous, which I know is always possible. But however, it was pretty comfortable. Um, and I think everybody was sitting there thinking, what about Martinelli? Why why give our, yes. uh, Aubameyang the minutes? And I take your point about you don't change a winning team and he's just scored goals and he wants to maybe get another one and and build on his confidence but you know it's a it is a real massive challenge for the manager to try and juggle all the needs of all the different players um and there is bound to be a, a sense in certain parts of the squad that some players maybe get favored other players might feel they can't catch a break um 
And it probably does need a lot of encouragement and a lot of discussion off the pitch to make sure those players who are not getting the minutes uh, or, or feel that, you know, they're maybe not even in the match day squad. Um, where's my motivation? Where's my kind of uh, capacity to keep my sense of competition really, really finely tuned? Um, so I think that a lot of that must be verbal and psychological because it's it's really difficult if you, you can't give everybody minutes um, if someone is not even getting on when they've travelled back from Greece and had a four-hour flight and just on the back of a, a, a really difficult run of games and they've got another away match that starts at 12 o'clock and they've had to travel at God knows when and you're still not getting minutes, you must think, oh, why is he putting on a Bamiyang? And, and Amy, there's no crowd, there's no buzz. That adrenaline is sort of definitely watered down. I think with the with the lack of fans inside the stadium, when you're doing all that travelling and you're you're not getting a sniff of a game, it it won't be good for your mental health. We've, so you're absolutely right. I think Mikhail has to be a, a psychologist here. Um, if he's not expert in the field himself, I'm sure that they've got staff that yeah. that are very good in in that department. But Adrian, that's management, isn't it? That is mm-hmm. management. There's no. I mean, I mean, maybe in 1971 we had we had 10 players who played 40 plus games in a league season, but that's just not the way it works now. Martinelli is an interesting um, case. Aaron Conway wrote to us. Um, Do you see Martinelli as a possible future option for the lone striker position, Nick? Um, how do you see? Uh, do you think that's a possibility for him? Is he good with his back to goal, Martinelli? I don't know. I mean, he just seems so dynamic in the role that Aubameyang occupies at the moment on the left, sort of cutting in and or in either flank. In fact, that it could be he evolves into a, a lone striker. Didn't you? I think Amy asked Mikel Arteta after the match at Leicester on the weekend why Martinelli wasn't coming on, why William came on instead of him and he sort of gave quite a convincing answer that he still sees Martinelli as a very important player in the future of the club and he's going to be very influential for Arsenal in in years to come but how he keeps his guys happy as I said that was the first thing he said in the press conference today that's his biggest challenge for the for the rest of the season I asked him later on about Balogun I mean I get teased about always asking about Flo Balogun but I just think he's got so much potential to be a player but he doesn't even get into the squad let alone a few minutes but he says he still said I'm I've been speaking to him. I've been speaking to his agent. They both now are convinced they want to stay. But he's deleted all Arsenal affiliations from his social media accounts, which I, which I saw last night. It doesn't mean much to me, but it does to some people by the sounds of it. it he, he doesn't even get in the squad. How is he going to be convinced to stay? It's, uh, uh, it's uh, a real test I, of, of his management, though, you say. I mean, Ben Marham has actually written to us uh, basically asking this question. Are you concerned about Arteta seemingly not giving time to our less experienced players? Um, I mean, Amy, you, you you ask Mikel Arteta this very question. Were you convinced by the answer, by the way? that he Because we've seen how he's treated some of the fringe players, Guendouzi being a, a case in point. Actually, I think the question was more related to the Benfica match. And I, th- I remember feeling at the time when Arsenal are in desperate need of goals, uh, otherwise they're going out. Um, and the first substitutions were Partey coming in in midfield, who is great as a midfield player, but it's not necessarily the man who's going to bring you goals or, or direct assists that often. And Willian, who everyone knew had been having a tricky season. Instead of, you'd think, your logic would tell you, you bring on... Um, either Lacassette or, or Martinelli or, you know, one of those players with kind of much more dynamic uh, Pepe uh, possibility of getting towards goal. And he explained it in a very tactical way and said, look, I 
Benfica were playing with this very, very low block and there wasn't room in behind them. So to play those kind of Martinelli, Pepe kind of players who want space to attack, to run into dynamically, he felt he needed players with a, a more composure uh, and with a little bit more kind of a different sort of guile, a bit more technical, I suppose, expertise around the box. Um so that was his his argument was when he read the game tactically, he felt that what was needed to create the goals was maybe more craft than out and out pace and goal scoring. So I understood it. I, it. I wasn't how I felt at the time watching the game. I was screaming for more strikers. It's not linear, though, is it? We know that it's not just because you have eight strikers on the pitch doesn't mean you're going to score eight goals a game. Do you, do you know what, though, guys? I think he read the situation of the game quite well. Because Benfica had a ridiculously high line for the first sort of uh, match and the and the and the first half of the one over there in Athens, and then because they had the lead, they then retreated. And I think he just read that situation, and and I kind of got where he's coming from. The, now, if Martinelli is only going to be used against teams that that play with a slightly higher line, then the the next run of fixtures aren't good for him. We've no, got Burnley coming up, Spurs. Practically on, you know, in in their own eighteen yard box, and West Ham, who who defend very deep under David Moyes, so you do wonder whether he's going to be limited in in the in the weeks ahead. But but yeah, I I think that was an interesting call uh, from Arteta. It worked, didn't it? It did. It did work. But can I ask a general question? You can all sort of answer this. Do you think Mikel Arteta is a cautious manager? I mean, he's a young guy. We expect. I don't know, maybe a certain joie de vivre from a, from a younger manager. But we, if we remember him as a player, he was, I believe, quite a cautious player. And maybe that has translated to his management. Um, Nick, what do you think of that? I think he is. I think he is naturally cautious. And when he came into the club and was trying to sort out the mess that Unai Emery and whatever else had been left behind for him, his first challenge, his first aim was to get short steady the, the defence, steady the ship, and then build, you know, which... Let's face it, all successful teams, certainly successful Arsenal teams, have been based on a very good defence and a good goalkeeper. And then once you've got the base, the confidence from that, then you can attack from there. And combining the two has been a, a bigger challenge. I mean, he's been let down by so many individual errors at the back, hasn't he, with Louise and so on, and players getting sent off, that that sometimes disrupted his, his plans. But I think he is naturally cautious, even though he's come through the sort of Barcelona academy and likes to see... Attacking football, uh, yes, is is the short answer to that. Amy, what do you think? Yeah, I'd say I'd say he probably uh, errs on the side of caution as well. Sometimes you look at substitutions um, and think something's not working, or there's a lack of tempo, or lack of dynamism. Can you change something up? And you wait and wait and wait and wait, and that sort of patient football, that quite precise style that uh, he's trying to implement. I think when you've got outstanding technicians uh, and hugely gifted creative players then that style can be fantastically attacking and, and effective but if the you're not quite uh, at full tilt in terms of that um, offensive quality yeah. then that kind of patient play can look a little bit turgid and dreary and <sighs> takes a, a, a yes. while to see where it's going um, so it feels cautious from that point of view sometimes. I don't think what he's trying to achieve in terms of the end goal is cautious football, but the pathway to it can feel a bit cautious at times. Adrian, do you think it's that we just don't have the quality of players that Manchester City had? 
or have partly yeah i do i completely agree with, with nick and amy it's it's about where we are now and, uh, and where we were when we took over i mean how how bad were we without the ball when he took the helm you know the answer is very bad and 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 he has improved us markedly that was you know part one of the mission and i think part two will be to from from a stronger platform to to make those build up plays and, and those sort of structured way that we attack make it a little bit more spontaneous and make it feel freer with manchester city it looks free and it looks spontaneous but most of the time it's it's stuff that they work on on, on the training ground it's stuff that peppers drilled into them over time seeing pictures on the field and and whatnot. It doesn't look as regimented or sl- slow as Arsenal's build-up play, but that's because they're further down the road, and, and because partly as well, Pep is a more experienced coach. And let's face it, in the here and now, a, a better manager, more experienced manager. So, so yeah, I think it will come. Mikel's doing the right thing, but yeah, he is cautious at the moment. Caution won him the FA Cup. Caution, you know, earned him that. that you know. The, that trophy, I think, going to the back three. I don't think he wanted to, but he knew that, that that something had to change. When I look at when Arsenal score goals in games as well, you know, two goals in the final 15 minutes of, of matches this season. It's the joint lowest with West Brom in the league. That there is that there there is that part of you. You want them to just let go at times, but, yes. but that will come. Yeah. I've got a couple of questions uh, that I wanted to just run by you quickly. Um, Mark Berland asks, is Lee Dixon okay? Will he be back on the pod to bring some balance to the inevitable Xhaka praise? And following on from that, the Bruce Banana podcast says, morning, does Xhaka have a future at the club beyond this season? Um, I mean, Yes, Lee. I don't think anyone was going to particularly praise Xhaka. He's doing an okay job. We sort of talked about this before, Amy, that, you know, he is probably first, well, he is definitely first choice at the moment uh, in that centre with uh, Partey. But do you think he'll be at the club next season? Yes. You do? Yeah, I do. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I remember writing a while ago a piece speaking to some people back in Switzerland about him. And he's such a... A funny one, Jacker, because whatever people might think of him, you know, all his managers that he's ever had, that he's ever played for, play him all the time. Think about it. Why is yeah. that? I mean, you know, either his critics are totally missing something. Um, yeah, his. I think you'd be hard pressed to find any of his managers he's ever worked with that are not complimentary and supportive of him. That you know, he may be an imperfect player, as Adrian said earlier, um, and maybe in future the ideal scenario is that there is a another player who's a, uh, you know can iron out some of those flaws that present themselves sometimes, and he is part you know he becomes slightly more squaddy than guaranteed starter, but he does have so many things that are really helpful to the team. He's always been one of those players, I think, that can do a great job for quite a lot of the game and some, and, and let himself down with something that clangs and looks quite obvious it, it, on a bad day. But he's played well recently. And he has. His, um, I know that it shouldn't be the be-all and end-all because obviously what's on the pitch is the most important, but his uh, manner around the club is really valued by everybody inside the club that I've ever spoken to 
um, and I think the interview he gave the other day, I don't know if anybody saw it, he gave his fantastic interview, I think it was before the Benfica game, where he talked about social Talking media. Talking about social media. And it's really yeah. worth uh, a watch if you haven't seen it already. And uh, as a person, as a human being, there's a lot that I admire about him. I know that some people find that situation that went on when he went off the pitch and threw down the armband kind of unforgivable and the words that were said and the sort of not quite apology type of thing. He is very much a man of his own convictions, but he is... You speak to anyone inside the club, I don't know if Adrian feels the same because uh, with your connections, but he wants to represent the club with high standards like very, very, very obviously, and he puts that across to everybody in his path is the way it seems. Mm. And I don't know how many there are like that in the squad, to be honest. No, I, I haven't heard anyone from inside the club be be really critical of him, that's for sure. I, yeah, I probably don't... Yeah, I haven't got, got the insight maybe you're looking for, for from people firsthand, but from what I see, I, I do agree w- with Amy. And I think I think the, the, the hate for him online is is so disproportionate it, it, I, I think these people aren't look watching closely enough to, to his contributions he does play forward passes I think he, only Rob Holden's played more forward passes than him this season he I think when he's not there you notice that a, a big difference he, for me he's one that can if he's got the runners he will all he will always look to play that that braver pass into a, into a, an attacking midfielder or a striker. I think his mentality is definitely one of, of a winner. You can see that he's a, he's, he is a leader. My my one criticism is that his mind wanders, and that I think from a central midfielder that that, that plays quite deep, I just feel that he has to switch on for for ninety minutes defensively every game. Now he was fully switched off. I mean, in the second half at Leicester, he was unbelievable. He was making blocks, breaking up play for fun. He inspired that third goal by charging in to win the 50-50. When his head is, is, is in the right place defensively, he makes such a difference to this Arsenal team. Just sometimes, we, we've all seen the big lapses in concentration and, 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 and those, those are moments that I think a lot of fans remember. Um, so, so if he can iron those out, he's, he's a heck of a player and definitely worthy of partnering Partey in the midfield moving forwards good passing range Nick yes yeah I mean he, he can really ping a pass sometimes and he can ping it right off the pitch into the sort of 10th row of the stands as well sometimes <laughs> but, yeah, but I think I think Clarkie's picked up on the point there when he, but when he does lose it he really does lose it and as Amy was saying that uh, press conference before the Benfica game which you can see in full on the Marvellous Haters TV YouTube channel um, he did speak about how every manager he ever plays for <laughs> picks him every week um, yes. But a lot of the reaction to that clip there, and I was posing the question, has Xhaka turned a corner and all these sort of things like that, and say, well, a lot of the people are saying, yes, he's playing a lot better, but we can never forgive him as Arsenal fans for that time when his reaction, when he got subbed against Palace, oh, cupped his ear, sake. took his shirt off and stormed down the tunnel. And he was stripped of the captaincy, wasn't he, after that, after that yeah. game. And that is the mentality of, of some people in the Arsenal supporting ranks who just can't forgive him for that. I mean, I think the players have forgiven him, the club's forgiven him, and he has moved on, and he's justifying his place in the team. He will be at the club next season, and he's a much better player alongside Thomas Partey than he is without him, but he can play without him too, and um, as much as it might upset some people, he's not going anywhere. No. Uh, well, Lee Dixon will be back uh, in the next week or two to, as we say, add some balance 
to this um, uh, part uh, to uh, to the praise. Um, one quick question: um, the Hawkster eighty eight on Twitter. Um, how does this campaign stack up to where everybody thought we were actually going to be at the start of the season? Are people surprised we're mid-table? Disappointed? Did they expect more from this season? This season, by the way, could still uh, result in us qualifying for the Champions League if we win the Europa League. Um, I, I mean, from my point of view, I, I'm, I think Arsenal are pretty much where I expected them to be. I, I, I think right now they are a mid-table team with a new manager, but... Um, I sort of feel movement in the right direction. Amy, would you feel the same way? I like the way you say. Just a quick question here. This is like a really <laughs> massive question. Um, well, it's it is a big question. Yeah, you're right. I, I think being a bit glass half full, I would have hoped it for it to have been slightly better than eleven defeats by the beginning of March uh, in the league and really entrenched in uh, in mid table. I, I think trying to compete with the sort of at least positions four to six, if not higher up, would have been uh, a hope to have essentially uh, stepped up from, you know, the, the, this this area of mid-table that, you know, that Arsenal were in for a lot of last season as well and what was a really complicated season. So, um, but I would say that I think, Signing a player like Thomas Partey for 50 million quid, you know, signing um, a massively important position player with a lot of quality that was expected to walk into the team and make a lot of things better very quickly. Um, and and he being unavailable for a lot of the time and obviously having had um, a kind of very st- a more stop than start uh, beginning to his Arsenal career has been something that's maybe affected the whole season I think because I think a fully fit fully firing Thomas Partey had he come in and taken off and been a mainstay of the midfield um, could have made things look a little bit different I mean so many of those games particularly have been fine margin games that have gone the wrong way and it's only recently, really, that Arsenal have started to get a few fine margin games going for them. Um, so, yeah, I wonder whether it could have been a little bit more than it has been so far. On Partey's continued absence, I looked at, at how he compared to, to some of the other players in terms of minutes in the Premier League. Moel Nenny has featured for 365 more minutes than Thomas Partey this season. Now, if you'd have asked any fans ahead of this campaign or you told them that that would happen, I think that expectations would have been immediately lowered. Um, so so we do have to give give the team a little bit of a pass on that one because, he, yeah, he was brought to be absolutely integral. Um, in terms of the season, I think our performances against the bigger teams have been far more encouraging. That's a definite plus. The kids coming through and shining and, and taking responsibility has been a huge bonus. But... We're at least 10 points shy of where we should be with this squad, this team, in my opinion. So so I don't think we can pretend it's not been disappointing, but, but there have been a couple of definite, definite upsides. We were a bit uh, with the handbrake at time. 
This is Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Ian Stone here with Adrian Clark, Nick Callow and Amy Lawrence. Art de Roche wrote a piece for The Athletic about Pablo Mari. Um, played very, very well, uh, I felt, on uh, on Sunday. And the, the main thrust of the piece, and uh, Nick, I'll come to you first. Uh, he was talking about how Mari was operating further forward quite a lot so so David Luiz was hanging back a little bit more Mari was pushing further forward and stepping into midfield quite a bit um it's high risk but high reward if you can break up the play yeah it really worked well doesn't it I must admit uh, to start off with I find it really frustrating that you know we talked about earlier about not having a settled or best starting 11 but surely if the team is going to be built on a good defense you have to have a regular central defensive partnership and Louise and Mari was a bit of a surprise to me at the weekend, to be honest with you, but it worked really well. And Pablo Mari has been one of those really pleasant surprise signings who, when he came in, I thought he's just going to be making up the numbers a bit, but he looks like he's got the potential to be a proper player. And the fact that he can come out of defence and, and bring the ball forward, you know, this is what Arsene Wenger tried to lay the foundations of as the Arsenal way, wasn't it? Playing that defence, even we saw, you know, Boldy and Tony Adams could bring the ball out of defence by the end of Arsenal's time there. I'd like yeah. to see, see more of Mari, but at the same time, I'd like to see a settled partnership at the back, and I haven't got a clue whether that's going to be Holding and Louise <laughs> or or Mari or, or or anyone, or Gabriel, you know. Gabriel. And then I was talking to Arteta this morning about Saliba and Mavropanos are doing very well out on loan. It seems to be a, a surfeit of central defenders, but not two that can play together every week. And, and this is, by the way, having got rid of quite a few central yes. defenders uh, in the last transfer window. Um, Adrian, uh, is it a good idea with a partnership? I know Art was talking about the fact that you want a left-footed, right-footed uh, partnership in the same way that, you know, say, Petit and Vieira in the centre and midfield back in the uh, late 90s worked, worked very well. In an ideal world, but I don't think it matters greatly. Arsenal have had plenty of dual right-footed centre-back partnerships that have worked just fine down the years. Um, and if you're going to use uh, Granit Xhaka as sort of that fill-in left-back and push Tierney on, there's not such an issue about balance. Um, so, so that makes a big difference. The way that, that Arteta builds from the back kind of negates that. So I think it's open open season in terms of who's going to grab it, who 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 is going to form the, the best combination. And, and they've all had good moments that, the, this season. Pablo Mari did play well after his obvious error f- for the opening goal where you know, he had a brain freeze really, you know, turning his back and following Jamie Vardy. You've got to go and engage with the most dangerous player there. That's, that's the guy on, that has the ball at his feet. So, He'll regret that one, but he did play well. I thought it was a really good piece, actually, for, from Art. I, I read it with interest, and and he was talking about the press and, and, and the way we squeeze. And having that number 10 basically join in as a second centre-forward to, to close down the opposition centre-halves. Now, and behind them, the two central midfielders pushed on really quite far, um, which then allowed Pablo Mari to, to squeeze up on, on Ian Acho. And... And it was a good point that he picked up on because earlier on in the season, we weren't doing this. And it was a big, big problem because there were huge holes between those advanced central midfielders and the defenders who were dropping off on the halfway. And it's it, it's fixed it by being more assertive. And I'll tell you why it's fixed it. It's the change of system. Previously, when we had a three-man attack, the wide attacker would have to come inside and 
sort of pressed the two, the second centre half, which meant that the wing back would push on, and there was a bit of disruption around. But but this but what you have now is a back four in place, and and the rest going to press. And if you've got a back four in place, then Pablo Mari can afford to go into midfield and have a nibble, uh, an attacking midfielder if he so wishes, because he's got cover either side so so yeah it was it's definitely a tactical change from from Arteta and and Mary looks pretty well suited to it um so yeah and Holding's done it I've seen him follow follow players into into midfield and I like it don't don't you all think that Arsenal are much better when we're aggressive and when we're assertive I think we just look a better team than when we sort of sit off and allow teams to run at us. That's that, that's when I think we all get really nervous. Well, I mean, I, Amy, Art talked about this in the piece about um, it's it, it's probably better uh, to do this against teams uh, that uh, are, are pressing further up uh, because then because the, you don't because then the centre half doesn't get pulled too far down the pitch. Um, and at least Pablo Mari does seem to have some pace. We saw him not get outpaced by Jamie Vardy, which was quite encouraging. Yeah, that was amazing. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I still feel slightly, maybe it's just being brought up under the George Graham days, but like my my real security and safety net is a back four that's, you know, the classic held together with a piece of string. I don't want my two centre-halves to be too far away from one another. Like, So that sometimes makes me feel a bit antsy, but I agree with Adrian, like, you know, not to be passive, not to be waiting for, you know, look at that first goal that no. Arsenal let in at Leicester. The backing off thing just drives me up the wall. Well, El Nenny is, is also, uh, yeah. there's something, yeah. you know, to, to have a little go at him. He should have been the first to engage him, should he not? Definitely. Yeah, they, they, should, they both they both had to do it. Um, they both had time to do it. They both could afford to do it because we had numbers back. Yeah, they, they were equally as, as culpable. Yeah. Um, yeah, this, I, do you know what? Harkening back to George Graham, that's just one, when you want one of the players to just scream at the others, mine, and just go and get it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, it all turned that. out all right in the end. No, it all turned out all right in the end. Uh, we're pleased about that. Um, now it's time for a game of Random Arse Generator. Um, our producer, Tao has sent me a name and each of our panellists will come up with some memories. Uh, it's a goodie today. Uh, it is the anniversary of one of the best goals uh, ever scored by an Arsenal player away at Newcastle. Uh, it is Dennis Bergkamp. It's Bergkamp. The move, and then this, which left Dabby's ass totally stranded. Uh, Nick, we'll start with you. Uh, memories of or thoughts about Dennis Bergkamp? Well, I just uh, just like you know, just makes gives you a warm glow, doesn't it, when you think of, of Dennis Bergkamp? That when Arsenal signed him, the Arsenal fans were saying, "We've got Dennis Bergkamp," and uh, that goal against Newcastle possibly won the all-time. Not just Arsenal goals of all time, but all-time football goals of all time. And I was I was watching it this morning as well, like you said, because it came up on uh, Twitter. People have been sharing it. It wasn't just the fact that uh, that Dennis was a supreme individual player, but you know he was very much one of one of the team men. And I was listening to um, Ray Parley the other day, and this must have been a story that Amy covered in the book she did with Ray about how they used to love winding up Martin Keown. And when Igor Stepanovs was on trial, it was Igor, wasn't it, Amy? Yeah, it was. Yeah, so when Igor Stepanovs was on trial at the club, and, you know, in brackets, he looked pretty useless, was the unsaid comment 
from Ray, but Martin Keown used to get always a bit worried about his his place in the team. And Ray and a couple of lads, and, and Ray specifically meant Dennis Burkamp was one of the chief sort of wind-up merchants at the club at the time, said, look, we'll just say he's... Whatever he does, we'll just say he's brilliant. Every time he touches, oh, God, look at that. Isn't that... What a touch. What a first touch. He's so solid, so secure. And in the end, Dennis started joining and goes, oh, yeah, I'd hate to play against him. Oh, God. <laughs> thank, you know, thank, God he, thank God he's not playing for the opposition. And much to their surprise, when they sort of turned up for proper training back at Highbury, there was Igor Stepanov's who was instrumental in the 6-1 defeat at um, Manchester United when he said, was that the worst game of your career? He said, I hope so. So, um, but, but Dennis was, was instrumental in getting Igor Stepanov into the club with his little sense of humour just to have a little wind-up for Martin Keown. And I just think that the fact he's got that cheekiness about him as well went a bit, un- been a bit missed by some of us. And, um, well, we've got Dennis Burkamp and he, we still do it, it feels to me, with that statue outside the ground. Uh, Adrian, Dennis Bergkamp. Oh, well, yeah, absolutely. He was so dry. So such a such a good dry sense of humour. So many highlights. Um, I would say his hat trick against Leicester was was up there with one of the best hat tricks in Premier League history. One of the best hat tricks in 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 Arsenal's history. I'm I'm sure. Just just so skillful. Such such a velvet touch, and it it it, it sort of epitomised what what he brought. Brought to the table, yeah. He was, yeah. I just couldn't, I couldn't believe I was sharing a dressing with Dennis Bergkamp. It was, it was, he was that good. I was, I was mega excited when we signed him, and and the and the person and the player definitely didn't disappoint. They were, he was so nice. I, I'll never forget. He, I was only a kid, 19, 20, 19 I reckon, and he'd just given uh, birth to his daughter. He must be in her twenties now, and. And um, yeah, he was he was having a christening, and and he'd, he invited me. He invited the whole team, um, but he'd included me in the in the um, in the sort of list. And I'd, I'd barely played a game, but I just felt quite touched by that. And I couldn't make it for I can't remember why I couldn't make it, but I bought a present for the baby and whatnot. But he made me as a as a young impressionable player feel like I was part of his team, and and he didn't have to do that. And and it was just I think a sign of of what a sort of rounded person he was, as well as a brilliant player. Hang on, hang on. Adrian, you were invited to the christening by Dennis Bergkamp (laughs) and you did something else and you didn't rearrange that other thing. I can't remember. I can't remember why, but I couldn't go. (laughs) But it was, uh, yeah, it was, um, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, I tried to make up for it. I bought a nice present. It's the acknowledgement from a superstar, right? That you, that yeah. you know, I exist. Oh my yes, goodness! Exactly. Dennis Burkamp knows he, I'm here. Yeah. He really didn't have to acknowledge my existence at, at that point. He really didn't. But but I was, yeah, I was chuffed to bits. And um, yeah, he, he was. Amy, uh, could you keep this down to below five oh minutes? Oh my god, I've got so many. I just don't know where to start. <laughs> well, this one, is at really hard. one at a time. One at a time. Just a quick. Um, I think I'm going to start with. Uh, the goal in Marseille for Holland against Argentina because uh, I was fortunate enough to be in the stadium that day and having also been in the stadium when he scored sort of the equivalent goal in that famous hat-trick you mentioned up at Leicester. Nick, you were there as well, I remember. You and I at the end. I was at Leicester, yeah. We, I think we were sat next to each other and I think we... I almost felt like I couldn't put one, could put one foot in front of the other afterwards. It was so mad it was such an incredible hat trick and then 
when Leicester came back and then there was a fight and there was so much going on that you just felt like your brain couldn't take it all in. But when he scored that goal for Holland at the World Cup, a baking day in Stade Velodrome in Marseille, and you knew the whole world was watching and that was our player. That was our player who'd scored one of the best ever World Cup goals. Heel goed naar Dennis Bergkamp. Dennis Bergkamp. Dennis Bergkamp neemt de bal aan. Dennis Bergkamp. Dennis Bergkamp. Dennis Bergkamp. Dennis Bergkamp. Dennis Bergkamp. Frank de Boer. The entire planet was watching. And that was our player who had done the same thing a few months ago in Arsenal colours. And I found it really, really emotional. I think he, he broke the, the then Dutch goal scoring record as well with uh, with that goal. And I love his celebration because he kind of falls on the floor and he puts his his hands over his face for a moment. It's like he's blocking out the rest of the world just to have that moment to himself for like half a second until, you know, his teammates arrive and, and it, it brings him back. But it was like a private moment, I suppose, maybe where your whole footballing life flashes before you and all the practice he'd done since he was a little boy in Amsterdam kicking a ball against the wall and choosing a brick and saying, OK, I'm going to hit the right, top right-hand corner of that brick and I'm going to try it with my instep and then I'm going to try it with the outside of my foot and then I'm going to do my other foot and I'm going to hit it harder or softer and see what happens to the ball when it comes back differently with that same corner and having that intensity of practice and accuracy and being obsessed about precision and perfection from kit from a kid and going through and coming through at Ajax under Johan Cruyff and then going off to Italy which was the best place in the world to play football and then coming to Arsenal and winning the double and then going off to the World Cup and breaking the Dutch goal scoring record and it was like that moment distilled his footballing life that up until that moment uh, I think I was felt like crying with him it was really beautiful yes yes it was um I, I mean there's a million Dennis Bergkamp moments aren't there really I remember an assist which I think was against Juventus when he went this way and that way uh, at Highbury and then and then just played this little lofted pass into Freddie Lundberg who lobbed the goalkeeper and it was he was he must have gone backwards and forwards about four or five times before he played the pass just waiting waiting for, to see to, to catch uh, you know have a little glimpse with Freddie and go go there and Freddie went and he just lofted this pass into into his path and Freddie chipped it in um, the awareness to do that on a football pitch I mean there were hundreds hundreds of assists I probably could choose but I love watching that one I thought just how much time he had on a pitch it was a it was a thing of beauty to me um, go on then let's have another one Nick well, another Dennis Burkamp memory. Yes. Well, I was, as you said, that, that that's quite a hard one to pick. I just, I think, from a personal point of view, I mean, I remember interviewing him quite a few times for the the club magazine, and he just seemed so, so self assured and, and calm. And he always used to say that, that little sort of pause. Yeah, yeah. You know, when he was talking, <laughs> it was a bit off, a bit un, uh, a bit off putting in some sense. But and uh, I'd like to think that I was one of the first people to call him the Iceman. I don't know if I was or not, but uh, that nickname sort of sort of stuck because he was so icy cool and just when he was through on goal, nothing but putting the ball in the back of the net was, was on his mind. And uh, I just think he was such a decent human being, a great guy to talk to. And I'm really envious of Clarkie and his... Well, just not envious, actually. I'm just baffled why he turned down the invite to the christening. Wow. 
I, w- I want to, Adrian. Any other invites you got from Dennis? You ignored? <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. I, yeah, I wish I could remember. Um, but yeah, he was he, he was just 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 in training, just just so good. I mean, the, the touch in training was ridiculous. So you could just drill balls into him, and he would just uh, cushion it. I think as a, as a player. From my own playing experience, obviously I did only had a handful of Premier League games, but but what I remember from playing with Dennis is just the weight of the pass. He'd give he would give it to you so that you didn't you didn't have to break stride. It was always perfect, either perfectly weighted into your feet or it was perfectly weighted in front of you for you to run onto. Just made you look a better player. He made everybody look a better player, and I think anyone that played with him would would, would certainly concur with that and and that's what the the best players do and and the just just if you don't mind me stealing another one the 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 best i love the goal celebration the one at sunderland with a chip into the top corner when they just all had had their hands over their mouths that that, that still makes me laugh now i see my old mate stephen hughes hughes he joining in with that he was absolutely loving it but but i think it was the perfect way to to celebrate a bird camp chip just to sort of oh my gosh what, what what's just happened there uh, yeah, that that thing about the passing. Lee Dixon said it wasn't just taking a pass from him as well. He said he made him a better player just because he could hit it anyway. Uh, that that uh, uh, any uh, in any way, and and Dennis Burkamp would just bring it down, you know, catch it on the end of his toe uh, as he could do. Um, Amy, what about you? Uh, I'm going to go back to the first season of Arsene Wenger and his first North London derby. It was pouring with rain. It was absolutely hammering it down. Uh, Tottenham cheated a bit. I think there was a situation with the throw-in. They didn't give the ball back and 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 scored a, a jammy, spawny goal. It was uh, all a bit tense. And Arsenal won, ran out three-one winners with some late goals, including um, uh, Ian Wright scored one and ripped off his t-shirt. Oh, I love the lads. Tony Adams scored a. A, a great goal and Dennis oh my god that goal right and all they want to just keep it in the corner here and take it into time added off and by me is a few noises right now well he has done and he's crossed for Bergkamp brilliant play from the Dutchman wonderful goal it's Arsenal's day now well if anyone's deserved a goal it, it was absolutely superb goal but what I loved about it most was the celebration um, because he kind of went on this kind of fantastic knee slide which seemed to go on unfeasibly long because of the skiddy surface shaking his fists and screaming and that whole Iceman persona it was like that wasn't ice cool that was him full of heat you know uh, full of full of passion and fire and uh, he understood I think what it meant and and everybody did. And that was the time when I felt that game was a pivotal match in demonstrating how Arsenal were changing and how this marriage of the kind of old-fashioned, gritty English, you know, fight against your North London rivals, um, Tony Adams, Lee Dixon, all, all the guys, mixed with Vieira, Bergkamp, you know, things were changing in terms of the the immense qualities coming into the team from abroad. Um, and it, it seemed to be summed up in that game for me. It was like something is happening here, something new. This is this is a 
kind of history being made. We're tra- watching something transform before our eyes. It was like watching a David Attenborough nature program, but it was football, <laughs> and we knew something was happening. It was important and momentous. Yeah. Um, and that that Bergkamp goal and celebration was quite epic. Uh, yeah, I, all right, one more I'll I'll do. We could do this <laughs> we, for yeah, about a week, the by the way, but, but we won't go too long. Uh, Ian Wright, I used to do uh, radio things with Ian Wright, and Wright, he told me that he met him at a petrol station when he signed. Uh, I love that story. But the one that, really, that I really liked was he shared a room with him for a while, Wrighty, and uh, Dennis was wearing these really nice pyjamas. And the next day, right, he got the same pajamas. He wanted to be, <laughs> he wanted to sort of just have that 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 sort of Burkamp thing rub off on him. And uh, I think somebody made him right by pajamas. Uh, I love that story. Uh, Tayo has basically said that it's um, everyone has won today, um, but uh, uh, Adrian, you get a special mention uh, for getting passes from Dennis Burkamp, playing in the same team, and also ignoring his his invitations. I think it's uh, that's definitely yeah, definitely worth a win. So we'll. Give Give it to you on points there, uh, Adrian. Uh, let's have a song before we go. Uh, Adrian, I'm going to come to you first for a song. Yeah, well, th- two songs sort of sum out how I, how I felt about about last weekend's game. Um, th- the first is a song I've never heard, but 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 it's a song by the Soup Dragons called "Pleasantly Surprised," and I think that <laughs> that sums up how I felt <laughs> after seeing the team selection and then the, and then the performance. So well done, all involved for, for for getting it right. But yeah, just Casey and the Sunshine Band. That's the way I like it. That's the way I like my Arsenal away performances. Yeah. Give the opposition pretty much nothing and and control the game. Perfect. Amy, what about you? Um, I, I'm going to dedicate this song choice to Mikel Arteta's wishes for Willian. Uh, it's a song called Revival. I know there's loads of them. So this one by LTJ Bookham. LTJ Bookham. I watched a documentary once where he couldn't get an iron in a in a hotel room in Japan. <laughs> just randomly what? Uh, but uh, there you go LT- I did yeah he couldn't get an iron he spent five minutes on the phone trying to go ironing board and they couldn't understand what he was saying um, <laughs> anyway by the way Nick do you have a song yes well I was first of all thinking after the way we came out of Benfica's match with with a win and then made six changes and beat Leicester so easily the Jackson sisters I believe in miracles <laughs> came to mind but then, just as I was um, nodding off last night, I saw the sad news that Bunny Whaler, the last surviving Whaler, had passed away. So I had to th- had to look into the back catalogue of the Whalers. And first of all, I thought of Small Axe, but that's about sort of a little man defiantly chopping down sort of the big tree, which is not Arsenal because we are the big the big tree. And I just think the way Arsenal are being a bit defiant at the moment and standing up for themselves, get up, stand up by the Whalers is my pick for the week. Great. Um, I'm having, because uh, we did make six changes uh, at the weekend, and I think everyone thought, really? But, you know what? We flew back from Athens. Everyone's tired. He freshened it up. So I picked uh, Fresh by Cool and the Gang, uh, and uh, it seemed to work. Uh, that's it for Handbrake Off. Thank you to Adrian Clark. Thank you to Nick Callow and Amy Lawrence. Also, thanks to our producer, uh, Teo Papula. Uh, I'm Ian Stone. 
Thank you for listening. See you soon. Athletic.